if I have not had the privilege to meet you yet, and I haven't met most of you, uh, I hope to get to meet you this week. My name is Mike Sladen, and I get the great privilege and honor uh, of opening the text with you this week and talking about truth and talking about the Word of God together. So I am excited just to partner with you and to join you on that journey. Uh, a little bit about me. I've got a wife and three girls. I'm a girl dad. Uh, my oldest is 22 years old, married this uh, two August ago, so now just crested two years. Her husband is overseas serving in Korea uh, in the Army, so they've been uh, more apart as their marriage has started than they have been together. My middle, we just put in the car, and she went back to Grand Canyon University to start her now junior year uh, of college, which is crazy, in the nursing program there. And my youngest is 17. She's in her senior year at a, a Christian school as well in Fresno, Fresno Christian, uh, and enjoying that. So it has been a fun kind of activity raising these girls and uh, enjoying kind of this stage of life. I am very, very familiar with it. So uh, a little bit about me, just so you kind of know a little bit about my world. I am from the great nation of Texas, born and raised there. We're quite proud of that. Any Texans in the house, by the way? Come on, you forgive me. Mm, yeah, we're going to have some San Francisco, Dallas fights to see coming, all the, all the things. So uh, I did get here as quick as I could. I've been here 20 years in Fresno. Uh, I had an interesting kind of upbringing. I grew up in a broken home. Uh, my mom and dad uh, divorced when I was two and a half years old. My biological father was an abusive alcoholic. Uh, my very first memory in my home was of violence of my dad committing against my mom. I, I remember that uh, like it was yesterday. Uh, my mom divorced him and married my stepfather who raised me as his own. I took his name when I was 18, legally adopted me when I was uh, officially a man, according to uh, the great state of Texas, and uh, I grew up in that type of home. Uh, and I grew up in kind of the, what we would call the Creaster home, the Christmas Easter crowd, right? I went to church twice a year, every year, whether I had to or was supposed to or not. That was kind of the, the drill in my home. God was certainly in my worldview, uh, but he was not involved in the day-to-day. -day. Maybe I was like a, a functional deist. Like he was around. Uh, I, I believed in, in the idea of God, uh, but he was certainly not uh, a part of our dinner conversations or anything in our day-to-day -day life whatsoever. And as I found, as I journeyed through life and I was trying to fill different holes in my life that existed, those got filled in, in my teenage years and in the seats that you guys are sitting in. As I walked through this year with athletics, I poured my life into trying to earn approval in that world to girls and uh, alcohol and things of those things, th that nature as I tried to find um, holes in the voids that were, were certainly there, at least filling in those things. And as I got into college, I joined a fraternity, and I realized all those holes simply became amplified. And all those things that I pursued uh, were not giving me any sense of joy or, or satisfaction. And I tried to fill them with so many things, and I didn't know what ultimately was there and what ultimately to fill that with. Well, my my pledge semester, kind of my tryout semester for this fraternity, I got invited to go to a Bible study. And I wanted to go to a Bible study about as bad as I wanted another hole in my head. But uh, an active in the fraternity asked me to go, and the only answer was to say, sir, yes, sir, I guess I'm going to this Bible study. So I showed up, and for the very first time in my life, I heard the gospel. I heard someone talk about the truth of Jesus Christ and who he was and what he had done in my life. I'd, I'd been around the things of God. I'd heard the stories. I'd been to Sunday school, but I had never in my life heard what Jesus did on my behalf. And something happened in that moment in October of 1994 where I began to process who God was, who I was, and realized that was what was missing in my life. In the words that we'll even look at in our journey together a little bit this evening and for the rest of our time together came true in the book of John where Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. 
And no one comes to the Father except through me. And I began to really start a journey with Christ my freshman year of college. I was surrounded by uh, men in my life that came alongside me, helped me grow in my walk with him, helped me understand who Jesus was, how to flesh those things out in my life. And my hope for you as you were sitting in these seats uh, this evening is that maybe we could go on a journey together, that you would give God permission to do a work in your life, that you would be willing to ask hard conversations. I recognize as, as I look out at a, a group of people this size, there's maybe two different categories of individuals that are here. Some of you, like me, I mean, you heard that news early on in your life, right? You, you grew up in a, in a Christian home where your, your mom or your dad or your grandparents or your aunt and uncles, they told you about Christ and you put your faith in him. And you were committed to the word of God, you're committed to Christ, you were students of the word. As you think about going to school every day at a Christian school, you get fired up about that idea. Many of you would say, yeah, that, that's me. And no, I'm not perfect, but I mean, I, I'm a committed follower of Jesus. There's a number of you here, I would guess, that that probably isn't you. And the reason that you're here, much like me getting drugged to a Bible study my freshman year of college, is because you have to be. Uh, Maybe because your school's coming and that was kind of, this is the thing that you had to do. Maybe you didn't show up at King's Academy because you really wanted to be there, but maybe that's just where you ended up. I just want to ask you to be open this week, to to be open about maybe the questions that that God is, is asking of you. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with God. Maybe you're not comfortable. Maybe you're thinking about this book that's thousands of years old. How in the world can it be relevant to you and I? I, just, I would ask that you would have a posture maybe this week where we can investigate what the Word of God says together. I'm super grateful for your grace and your attention as we explore this idea specifically of truth be told. As we study the book of John, as Russell talked about earlier together. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 1. Stick your finger there. We're going to kind of take the long scenic route to get there. If you guys are note takers and want to write in your, in your booklets, that's great. I would encourage you just every time that we get together to make a habit of maybe writing some things down that maybe God's working your, in your heart that you can take into your, your discussion time with your small group. But we're going to look at this idea of truth be told. And it comes out of this theme in John chapter 18 where Jesus is having a dialogue with Pontius Pilate. It says, therefore Pilate said to him, speaking to Jesus, so you are a king, Jesus answered. You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and this I have come into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate's response to Jesus was, what is truth? Maybe not more relevant words written over 2,000 years ago, but it's a question that we find ourselves wrestling with today. What is truth, especially in today's culture, where we're influenced by postmodernity and humanism? And this idea of questioning truth has been around for a long, long time. In fact, it starts way before the pages that we see in John chapter 1. If you want to flip there with me, I want you to go to the very beginning of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 3 where this issue of beginning to question what is real and what is true really begins. It's Genesis chapter 3, where kind of the wheels fall off humanity. And the core issue as we look at this problem is this idea of man and woman being tempted to live life without God. Did you know the story of Genesis 3, verses 1 and following? It says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You guys know the story, Adam and Eve are in the garden. The serpent, who we know to be Satan, approaches them and questions God's rule and God's reign in this garden. 
And he comes now to Eve while she's enjoying this life. And he offers her this subtle lie posed as a question. He questions God's word. And Eve is caught off guard but then responds in verses 2 and 3 of Genesis chapter 3. The woman said now to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So she responds with the word of God that she knew to be true. She adds a little piece to it. God said, don't eat of it. God never said, don't touch it. But she adds that, that idea in there. And she says, God's consequence, what he said to us, is that there would be death that enters in for the very first time. And then in verses 3 and 4, 4 and 5 rather, I want you to notice now Satan's response to Eve's words. It says, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, questions God's word and his justice there. He says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be, get this, like God, knowing good and evil. Challenges God's word, God's justice, and ultimately God's love. And what Satan is saying in this moment to Eve is God is holding out on you. There is something that he is not offering to you. And if you eat of this tree, you will then be like God. He's like a divine buzzkill in your life. He is withholding from you. He's, a, he's, he's keeping you kind of locked in this idea. And what is offered in this moment to Eve is a temptation to live life in a way that she was not designed to live it. God had created her and created Adam to be in intimate union with him, to live in relationship with God. And what Satan is saying very subtly is, you don't need God. You can be your own God. You can live autonomously. You can rule your own life. And this is how she then responds. As we know the story, they eat of the tree, and they realize in that moment sin enters the world. This idea of autonomy and living apart from God appeals not only to Adam but also to Eve, and sin enters the world in this moment. So why do we ask this? Why do we start our time here? Because for our theme of truth this week, this is why it matters. The lies that were planted in Eve's mind all those years ago are not so different than the same lies behind our rejection of truth today. The same things that Adam and Eve wrestled with, of rejecting God and doing life without God, is in a sense the very same thing that our culture Uh, And we wrestle with even today. So we think in a lot of ways that we can live life apart from God, that we simply do not need God in our life. We believe as as a culture that we can personally define right and wrong. We think we can personally design our own truth based on the voices in our heads and the desires in our hearts rather than trusting in the words of a loving God. And as we talk about this idea of relative truth, you guys see this every day, don't you? You hear people in your world saying, well, good for you. I'm glad that you believe in Jesus or you believe in God or those are the moral standards that you have. That is your truth, but it's not my truth because your truth and my truth are incongruent and there isn't something universal Uh, like dominating or ruling over all of those things. You live in a world where everything is relative. You know, it's interesting to me that not too long ago, my dad, who will turn 83 years old this week, grew up in Texas public school. 
And they studied the book of John and the book of Genesis in public school. Just two generations ago from you guys, he's old enough obviously to be your grandfather, there was this idea in Texas public school that there was an absolute truth that we could uh, conform to it and that we needed to study it and it could be found in the Bible. It's crazy to me uh, that that has changed so much. And so many of you are living in the backwash of what has happened in two generations. But the Bible says something different, that there's a truth that actually exists outside of ourselves that is not subject to human approval. And as we look now at the book of John, that really is John's aim, to elevate this idea of truth so that our hearts would be moved to make a decision about this truth that, that John is laying forth before us. So a little bit just on the backstory of John before we get now into John chapter 1. So flip back to there if you were in Genesis chapter 3. John is one of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all write from a very similar perspective. John's perspective of Jesus and the story of Jesus on this earth was a bit different. As you know of John, he was one of the 12. He's one of the guys that walked with Jesus. He's referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. His gospel is written about 30 years after the other three gospels that preceded, at least in order, in our Bibles. And the theme of John's gospel is this idea of belief. He's trying to get his readers to believe in the Jesus that he is putting on display for them, simply telling his story. That is the truth that he is trying to get us to understand his readers. So in John chapter 1, verse 1 now, let's begin there. Let's read these first five verses together. John 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being, uh, nothing has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John uses a word to describe Jesus here. He calls him the word. Uh, these verses clearly describe the incarnation of Jesus Christ where the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, took upon himself flesh. And what John is arguing is that Jesus has eternally existed alongside of the Father and alongside of the Son, what the Bible often refers to as the Trinity. That he didn't have a beginning. He has always pre-existed. He was there at the beginning. And as you reread those verses, specifically verse 1, it should sound familiar John is trying to get us to think about something else as we read his gospel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. John 1, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In contrast to a picture of a world emerging out of chaos and purposelessness by random chance, the Bible is actually painting a picture of a world that was created by an all-powerful creator, a world that was designed and created, in fact, on purpose. Now, I want you to think about for a moment the implications of this as John kind of links our minds all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If there is a creator, then there is a design. And if there is a design, then there is truth. And if there's truth, then there's purpose and morality. And if there's purpose and morality, then there's accountability to the God who created these things. 
On the flip side, if there's no creator, we're just here by some cosmic, ultimately, accident, right? There's no design, there's no truth or, or purpose or morality. We can just do whatever we want. And for a long time, by the way, our culture embraced what we would call a Judeo-Christian worldview, where there was one God, there's an absolute truth that is to be found out there, but we have come a long way from what my dad learned in public school in Texas just two generations ago, that there's a God that can be found in the Bible. We have drifted pretty significantly from that idea. And the reality is, is we think about how the world basically sees how to operate. There, there are two significant theories on human existence. One is this idea of humanism. For maybe many of you, this is what you learned in school. If you didn't maybe enter into the King's Academy uh, and hear kind of the creation accounts and the Bible wasn't the worldview that you were taught, this is the worldview that I was taught as I journeyed through public school in Texas. Humanism is the idea that humanity, not God, is at the center of truth or the center of reality. And there's two kind of broad philosophies with this. And again, we're kind of diving deep into some philosophical stuff, but I think it's, it's helpful to kind of set the stage of where we're going this week. The first of this humanistic thinking is this idea of scientific naturalism. It's based on atheism, that there is simply no God. Based on the theory of evolution, you guys have heard about this, the primordially, primordially ooze, the, uh, the Big Bang, natural selection, all of these concepts that are out there, survival of the fittest, gen genetic mutation. Uh, this is the idea that we came from some cosmic accident that happened, and all that we see today now is, is a result of that. The problem with that worldview is it's very cold. It's very unkind. It's driven by instinct and individual desires and a personal belief system. And everything is subjective, right? Human worth is subjective. Value, worth, and dignity, all the things that we would attribute to humanity are all based on one's personal experience. There is no absolute in all of those. So truth then is subjective to what is yours or what is mine. Right and wrong are essentially up to the individual then to define. There's no divine power to be accountable to. And it, the problem is it is inconsistent with what we know to be true as humans. If I asked everyone in this room, is murder wrong? I would, I would venture to guess that 99.5% of you would say absolutely. And I would not need to take you to a thou shall not murder, thou shall not kill text or book that says that. There's something innate within us that says it's wrong for me to take the life of another human being, yes? We understand that. We, we, we get that, right? So this idea that there's no absolute that everything is relative, simply goes against what we know to be true. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. So that's, that is one of the aspects of humanism, scientific naturalism, based again on atheism. The more relevant version of that is postmodernism uh, post, uh, or postmodernity. This is the idea that re, uh, there, there really is no such thing as reality in and of itself. Reality is simply a social construct. It's what a group of people takes to be real, according to their interest and purpose, and whatever a group of people regard to be real, uh, that then is what is real. The problem with that is, truth is not whatever I decide it to be. Uh, truth is when reality matches the way I think or believe or whatever I think, that, that simply isn't true. If I asked you, do you believe in gravity? You would say, yeah. What if you said I don't? It doesn't really matter. Whether you believe in gravity or not, it is true. If you want to find out, jump out of an airplane. 
and see whether you agree with it or disagree with it, it doesn't matter. Gravity is a force of nature that doesn't need us to interject or say, hey, whether I believe that to be true or not will make it real. That simply isn't the reality that we live in. So post-modernity ultimately fails in that. We cannot unconditionally believe everybody else's reality because at some point, those realities are going to collide together. Those are going to be opposites, so we simply are left with a collision of ideas. That essentially is humanism. But there is a second option, an option that I didn't learn growing up, but I bet many of you especially where you were schooled are, and that's the idea of theism, or to be theistic, a God-centered way to look at the world. It's based on creation. That there is a deity out there that is pre-existent, that he created this world. He, in fact, spoke it into existence that mankind, humankind, was made in his image. And that he created us to be in relationship with him. And we are given by this creator divinely endowed uh, humanity. He has given us dignity. In fact, Genesis 1 verse 26 says that we are image bearers. If I were to show you a picture of my family, you would say, Mike, your girls look just like you. They, they bear your image. As the Bible talks about you and me being image bearers of God, it doesn't mean physically. What God is saying is he has made us unique in the way he's designed us. We have wills. We have emotions. We have intellect far beyond any other created being on this earth. Those are aspects and attributes of what are inherent to God that he has shared with us. He's made us that's, that way. That is where those things come from. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you and I are fully unique as individuals, that we have all of those things that we mentioned previously, both male and female, all of humankind shares those together. Ultimately, to reflect glory and beauty and the creativity of our God. Why is that significant? Friends, the reality is you and I are not an accident. We were not an oops. We have a divine creator who lovingly shaped and molded us into who we are as human beings. That attributed these aspects to us. The problem with this view that's hard to swallow is that means we're not in control. We don't get to make the rules of the game. There is somebody outside of us that's bigger and more powerful, and then we must submit to that God. But as we're going to see in our journey together, that God that we see in Genesis 1 and in John 1 and following is a loving, kind, good, benevolent, sovereign, omnipresent God. He is a beautiful God. And this, by the way, is the God who Jesus came to reveal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By the way, how do we know this is true? How do we know these things that the Bible asserts to us are true? How can we open this book and say, I, I can take it for what it says and believe ultimately what is here? If I could, I want to maybe just suggest that what God has done for us is drop clues, almost like breadcrumbs along the way, that we would see his hand in things all over our natural worlds. He has given us, in a sense, signs that we can see that point back to him. Uh, when I was in high school, when I was your age, I was 16, and my family was taking a, 
a trip from Texas to Colorado. And we all got in our old beater van, right, with the sleeper sofa in the back. And uh, I got the midnight shift, and we were driving north out of Texas through Oklahoma. When we hit the Kansas border, then it became my turn to drive, right, because I was the teenager and I could stay up past midnight. So my dad handed me the keys. He said, start driving north. You're going to see this sign that tells you when to get off the highway on this road. Get off there, and you're going to drive there for like four hours. You can't miss it. I'm like, great. So my parents go to sleep in the back. My brother was in the seat behind me. He was out. It was late. I was tired. Well, I missed the sign. And I drove four hours the wrong way through Kansas in the middle of the night because I missed the signs. Yeah, it was pretty significant. Oops. Understanding signs is important. What they say and where they're directing you. And I want to show you in the last part of our time together now Four signs that God has left for us like breadcrumbs to demonstrate that he is real and what we see about him is true. Number one, as you think through the first of these four, is creation. This world that we see around us, especially up here at Hume Lake, is a a neon sign pointing to a creator, a designer, Uh, Genesis 1-1 again says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As you drove up here, as you left kind of um, the landlocked place where you guys are from, as I'm from in in, in Fresno, and you begin to maybe move up to the mountains, and you see mountains and skies that are bluer than maybe anything you've ever seen, and you see trees and all of this, there's there's something about you that, that, that makes you think like me, there's something out there. There's some designer that began to create this. This did not come from some simple oops. Now, I've got a very good buddy of mine who's a, just a dear friend that doesn't believe in God. And he's kind of moving somewhere between like atheist to, to agnostic. He's kind of somewhere in, in that world. And he and I both love to, to camp and be outside. And, and we were spending time together kind of looking at God's creation up at a lake that was at like 9,000 feet and just enjoying the stars like you had never seen them before. And I asked him the question, I said, Ryan, do you really believe that all of this is an accident? Do you really believe? Can you you be intellectually honest with me and say that everything out there that you see is just the result of random chance? That the beauty that we see in creation uh, is is simply just, there's, there's no intelligent designer behind it? And he said, no, I can't get there. He said that there has to be a designer based on the design. What we see is too miraculous. In fact, we ended up reading a book together by a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. And he wrote a book called The Case for a Creator. If you haven't read it and you're wrestling with this idea, is, if, is God real? And can I, can I trust that that is actually the case? Uh, Strobel set out as an atheist to disprove Christianity, very similar to other authors who had done this. And a journalist, he kind of took it upon himself to do that. And he ultimately, at the end of his journey, became a Christian. He said, everything that I tried to disprove, I actually have done the opposite and have seen it to be true. And what he mentions in his book are 30 constants that scientists have discovered, constants in nature, 30 things, and there's probably more than that. But he said, of these 30 If you take any one of these 30 constants that we see in nature, if they were just one billionth of a percentage point smaller or larger, there could be no biological life in the universe. He gives an example like the charge of an electron. If that somehow was different, life could not sustain itself in the way that it would. 
If the universe were expanding slightly faster or slightly slower, life could not be as it was. If any one of these 30 was just even the the slightest bit altered, the stars would never form, the universe would fly apart, DNA would not exist, life as we know it would simply be impossible. Earth would flip over itself, it would freeze, and, and so on. That's just one of at least 30, as Strobel mentions. The Psalms talk about this idea that the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Friends, when you walk out this evening and you go look at the stars and you see this, that creation is speaking to you. It is saying something about a creator, about a designer who designed it that way. And by the way, you know what blows me away more than anything? None of it needed to be pretty to work. Did you know that? I mean, photosynthesis can happen with ugly trees. God says in Genesis 2 that he made these things beautiful to his creation so that we would enjoy those things. God did that all for us. So this idea of creation points to a creator. All we need to do is look at the stars and the mountains and the oceans and the animals, birth, and we see that. He says this in Romans chapter 1, Paul does, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse. God says he gave this to us because it would ultimately point to him. So number one, creation. Secondly, conscience. Every one of human beings, every human who's ever existed has a conscience. Our conscience gives us an awareness of what is right and wrong. We talked about this earlier, the idea of murder. Like there's something innately in us that says, I shouldn't do that. When you're tempted to cheat on a test, that conviction that you begin to feel, even as a non-Christian says, that's not right. When I lie to my parents about where I've been or what time I came home or how late I was missing curfew, there's something in us, even as people that don't necessarily follow God, that recognize what I am doing is violating something bigger than me. And the Bible tells us that God has revealed himself through our consciences. It says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, speaking here in Romans 2, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Like creation, the conscience provides evidence of the existence of God. It doesn't prove or provide a personal relationship with him, but there's a sense that there is a right or wrong that is literally stamped upon our hearts by God. Thirdly, we have the very Bible that I'm reading from right now that you have in your laps, the scriptures. Now, this is actually the subject of our next message tomorrow morning, so I don't want to dive too deeply into it, but what I do want to say is this. While creation and conscience give us a general revelation of who God is. It speaks of God in in generalities. God's word gives us a specific revelation of who he is. The scriptures claim to be God's inspired words. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is inspired, literally God-breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 
Paul says it's not just the, the human hand that wrote these pages that we're reading and listening to. It's actually God behind the scenes through his Holy Spirit that is inspiring the words that are on that page. They are God-breathed. And then ultimately, God shows himself through Jesus. As you think about the main theme of God's word, it's actually not a what, it's a who. Listen to Jesus' very own words in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So the fourth and final thing is the way God reveals himself is ultimately through the person of his son, through Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. He is the main character of Genesis all the way to Revelation. The primary truth of the Bible is Jesus. We've seen already in John 1, verse 1 through 5, that Jesus is our preexistent Savior, that God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have existed from eternity past. Now, as we look and continue in John, verses 6 through 8 reveal a prophet by the name of John, John the Baptist, who appeared to prepare the way for Jesus. And here's what he said about the rest of the verses regarding Jesus. Look down at verse 9. He said, There was a light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Speaking, obviously, here of Jesus. He came into his own, and those that were his own did not receive him. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And then there's this incredible crescendo in verse 14 where we will end our time here this evening, at least in the book of John. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, in that moment, took on flesh, was incarnate as the the Bible calls it, and he became a man. That is the person of Jesus Christ. And God's plan from the very beginning was that Jesus would reveal the truth about God, that he is eternal, that he is our creator, and that he is the source of all truth. Jesus was at the beginning with God the Father, and he is God revealed in flesh. So as we think about those things and ask ourselves the question again, is this true and is what we have in front of us reliable? God in his breadcrumb method has shown us through creation, through conscience, through the scriptures, and through Jesus that he is indeed the one who is behind it all, that he came to demonstrate, Jesus did, that God is gracious and true. John 14, 6 says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says, I am not a way. I am not one of many spokes to a wheel, all of which lead to God. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the creator except through me, because he and I are one. Friends, I want to invite the, van, the band back on stage as we finish our time together. And here's what I would love to do. 
I just want to admonish you guys as we close and as you think about this week, would you be willing to explore this idea with me of truth and to ask the question as, as even we saw asked earlier in the text tonight by Pilate, what is truth? My prayer for you this week is that your hearts and your mind would be open. If you've come maybe with a posture like I did for much of my life where you were closed off to those things that you had no interest in, in, in spiritual things or of God or any of those things, I'm, I'm going to ask you, while you're here, would you be open to what God may be doing in your life? Would you be open to asking some of those questions, to, to talking about those with your, your counselors and with your groups of men and women that you're going to be spending time with, that, with this week? And I'm going to be honest with you. There's no manipulation here. There's no guilt trips that we're laying on you. I simply want to be a truth teller to you and say this is what the scripture says. This book has shaped and changed the direction of my life. And when someone was courageous enough to say, Mike, let me tell you what the Bible says about who you are and who God is and what Jesus has done on your behalf, my life completely changed. And my hope for you is that maybe that would happen to you this week, that you would see the truth that is recorded for us in these pages and that we would maybe go on a journey together that would lead you ultimately to the foot of our Savior. Let's pray, and then we'll continue here in worship. Father, we are grateful for who you are, and we are so grateful, God, that you did not leave us alone on some island uh, trying to find our way out of the darkness. Lord, you revealed yourself to us. You did it through so many different means, through your creation, through the conscience that lives within us, through this, this book that you have left us with. And Father, ultimately you did it through your son, that you allowed your son to come to this earth to show us who you are, that he is the embodiment of all that you are. And Father, as we study about Jesus this week, as we put him under a microscope, so to speak, and see his life lived out before us, Father, would you soften our hearts would you help us to be open to maybe the work that your spirit wants to do in us? Father, would we just be willing to be honest and say, God, am I willing to consider this to be true? And if so, Father, what would you have us to do? What would you do with us this week? I pray, Father, that that would be our heart's posture. And God, I pray for any students here tonight that don't yet know you, that this would be a sweet journey for them where they can safely ask the hard questions, that we can investigate together who you are, and that you would do a work even in that. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.